Typically, doctors may assume that spending too much time with one patient is potentially wasteful and will take resources away from patients still waiting to be seen. Accordingly, we refuse to see or address the suffering and loss that lie just below the surface of what the patient presents, and we justify this to ourselves and others in the name of efficiency. Other effects of the scarcity loop include the way doctors have become increasingly defensive in our practice to avoid being considered culpable for errors. This is predicated on privileging certain measurable outcomes and the assumption we've made to get there. In the same way, we focus on how to make people live longer, something that is also measurable and often technologically achievable, but not on how to make lives mean more. Thus, the prevailing discourse of our time actively discourages us from probing into what it means to our patients to experience ill health and into what being well would constitute for them. Hello and welcome to Data Point, the show about all the ways data and analytics are driving innovation in healthcare today. I'm your host, Greg Matthews. That introductory statement was a direct quote from an article by Rupal Shah and John Launer published in The Lancet this week and is an outstanding representation of the underlying principle behind Eric Topol's latest book, Deep Medicine, How Artificial Intelligence Can Make Healthcare Human Again. If you missed last week's episode, it's a good backgrounder for this week's. It's a seven-minute mini-episode giving some background on Dr. Topol's increasingly important presence in the way we all perceive the future of healthcare. If the concept of technology, and especially artificial intelligence, making medicine more human seems like a disconnect, you're definitely going to want to keep listening and to pick up a copy of Deep Medicine. Links to Dr. Topol, his books, and the Lancet article I quoted from above are all available in the notes for this show on touchpoint.health. Now, without further ado, my data point conversation with Dr. Eric Topol. Eric, thanks so much for being with us today on Data Point. Uh, great to be with you, Greg. Fantastic. Well, I've been excited to have you on the show. And as you know, uh, last week, I recorded a little bit of a, an introductory to uh, make sure that the audience was familiar with some of your work uh, so we can really dive into some of the details here. And normally, I like to start the show by sort of getting a little bit of a history to provide context. But since we've covered a lot of that, I wanted to ask start with a really specific question. Um, as you were developing this focus on individualized medicine, really bringing medicine to the individual. I'm curious if you can pinpoint a point or a couple of points earlier in your career when you really saw that clearly as the direction of your research. Oh, thanks, Greg. I mean, I think it really dates back when I was a kid because I was so into genetics. Um, that's what I majored in in college. And, you know, it always was with me that we were unique. And then as I saw medicine being applied over the years with mass screening and kind of giving the same medicine for all people, irrespective of their individuality, it really dawned on me that, you know, over time we are progressively getting the tools, the armamentarium to define our uniqueness. And whether it's our genome or our sensors or our gut microbiome or uh, imaging, all these different ways that, you know, really can set us apart as as true, unique people. So I, I think that's what is the critical aspects of of going back going forward in healthcare to make it far more 
uh, precise, far more accurate, and far more recognizing that you know we really are truly uh, individuals. So, would you say that that perspective shaped your work even back at the Cleveland Clinic when you were the head of the cardiovascular medicine program there? Was that was that incorporated sort of into the way that you shape practice guidelines and those kind of things? Uh, it's funny you mentioned guidelines. I've been kind of anti-guidelines for most of my career because they tend to um, go the opposite direction, treating everybody the same. Mm. But in fact, when I was at Cleveland Clinic, I, I was lucky to be able to start the first cardiovascular gene bank. So we actually uh, got 10,000 people who were going through the cardiac cath lab to uh, volunteer to participate in a gene bank. And you know, while we were inserting the catheters to do their angiogram, we were able to get blood and, and of course all their electronic health records. And so that was a good beginning of getting back to the, at least from a heart and vascular standpoint, getting back to that critical um, basis. Uh, but, you know, I, I think in many different ways, you know, in the late nineties, it was also starting to get connected with the idea of sensors and the whole idea of being able to monitor your heart rhythm through the internet. And, you know, mm -hmm. all of a sudden we started seeing technology that was, uh, delivering on this principle. And yeah, that must have been a pretty incredible thing to see some of that vision coming to coming to life in the forms of technology advancements. Um, I, I yeah, wanted that, to ask. That's you, a really important point, though, Greg. Is that yeah. we just didn't have the means to do this. You know, nobody could get uh, a, a gene chip of a million common variants, no less a whole genome sequence, no mm -hmm. less you know wearable sensors for any uh, organ system in your body, and, and on and on. You know, so. Uh, that's what is so exciting today in, in medicine is that we transcend this kind of old era where it was dumbed down and, you know, we had guidelines. And I mean, for me, for example, you know, as a cardiologist, I'll get dinged because I didn't use a statin in people because mm -hmm. their LDL was, above, you know, below a certain, above a certain level. And it's just crazy because there's good reasons for not. Uh, that is, right. the person is so extraordinary low risk, but genomically as well as every other clinical way. So that's the way we treat people today uh, is, you know, we have these guidelines where we have very um, primitive means of uh, assuring therapy. I'm fascinated by that example. I, uh, I recently saw a video in which you were talking about um, – the use of personal genomics in helping to determine whether statins were appropriate to prescribe. Can you can you talk a little bit about a little bit more about that? Because I think it's they're so so commonly prescribed, and yet it sounds as though there are a lot of people who don't get tremendous benefit from them. Right. Well, just to be clear, um, there's both under prescription. I mean, there are some people that really should be on statins. That, for example, they already have heart disease and mm -hmm. they have high risk, and they are. But the biggest problem, by far is the overprescription, in my view. And that's because the actual benefit for people who don't already have heart disease, but this is now for primary prevention, mm -hmm. we're talking about maybe two to three per hundred will benefit for clinical outcomes by all the data that exists today. Wow. Uh, the rest of those people are just getting a pretty lab value, I mean, an improvement in their LDL cholesterol, but at the risk of some side effects and some cost, of course. Um, so now we have a way uh, with um, 
what's been dubbed as polygenic risk score, but basically it is hundreds of uh, letter variants in a genome that can be uh, determined through things like 23andMe or Ancestry, mm -hmm. or in the future we hope to uh, help introduce uh, less than $20 um, um, way to do this test, that is this assay of the uh, common letter changes that are indicative of very high risk or low risk. Now, of course, the gray zone is not so helpful, but if you're at very high risk, that is the kind of people who should be taking a stand because the data from hundreds of thousands of people demonstrate remarkable benefit of statins, you know, not just two to three per hundred, but far greater anticipated. But on the other hand, if you're a very low risk and a score of, you know, less than 20 or less than 10, there's just no need uh, to be taking a statin for primary prevention if that's your, you know, you have one other risk factor, for example. Um, so, you know, the traditional risk factors like diabetes and mm -hmm. smoking and uh, high cholesterol and uh, these things are it's still important, but now we have information that is not just independent, but also highly complementary, and that someday will be routine. You know, I'd like to talk about that a little bit. I know it's kind of a jump forward from where we started, but I'm really intrigued by the concept of polygenic risk scoring and also by your participation in the All of Us initiative uh, that's looking at collecting data from over a million patients. Can you talk a little bit about where we are today relative to our capabilities to do polygenic risk scoring and what some of the you know, the ongoing research uh, you feel is going to contribute uh, to that? Well, you know, right now, uh, you really can't get these tests. Uh, I mean, we offer it through um, Scripps Research. My colleague, Ali Turkamani, set it up as a mobile app, MyGeneRank. Mm. So you take your 23andMe data, if you have it, and you can just put it through that, quickly get your heart risk score, heart disease risk score, and that'll tell you not just about the potential benefit or lack thereof of a statin, but also um, it'll tell you about, you know, if you really should gear up on your lifestyle and exercise and yeah. diet and weight and that kind of stuff. But beyond that, we have risk scores now that have been validated uh, in very large cohorts for uh, prostate cancer, breast cancer, colon cancer, atrial fibrillation, type 2 diabetes, all of which are actionable. It doesn't make sense to do these, that is, to get them out there for things like Alzheimer's or obesity because they're not exactly actionable unless, you know, we had a treatment or a means of prevention. So eventually, over the next couple of years, uh, these, these uh, polygenic risk scores will become more commonly used, especially when we can get them at very low cost. Sure. And basically what it entails is a, is assaying at least a million of the letters of a genome. So that's a tiny fraction of the, mm -hmm. of the three million, three billion, excuse me, three billion letters that constitute a haplotype of our genome. So it's a tiny fraction, but it's where the action is as far as common variants that associate with a medical condition. And it's only called polygenic because it, it almost invariably involves hundreds of these letters. So that's what the poly comes from. And that's really fascinating because what you're saying, if, I, if I'm understanding correctly, is that we don't have to do a full genome sequencing. And for the people, you know, there are 
what now millions of people that have done some form of genetic testing through 23andMe or National Geographic or what have you or Ancestry. And those folks can actually use the algorithms that, that your team has put together or that the Scripps team has put together today uh, to help formulate some of those polygenic risk scores? Well, for heart disease, the only one we have out there, um, but we're working on ho- hopefully over the next year getting several of the others out there. Wow. Um, the only other way, there are some companies that are starting to offer these. 23andMe even began a diabetes, type 2 diabetes one. I mean, we're going to see a lot more action in this space. And you're right, Greg. Mm-hmm. You don't need to do genome sequencing, which is, you know, these days, even $1,000 um, is kind of the the lowest cost you're going to see that for. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, the informativeness for $1,000 is not that great today unless you are sick or you know special reasons to get a genome sequence whereas a polygenic risk score is so remarkably inexpensive and provides a lot of useful information or, or it will provide when we cover all the common conditions that are what we would consider highly actionable sure and i would assume that those processes the development of those algorithms to process those multiple layers of data, or at least part of what you talk about when you talk about deep medicine. Is that correct? Yeah, this is just one layer of deep phenotyping, which yeah. is defining that individual's medical essence as much as we can today. So it's just the one layer, you know, it's it, it, the physiology through the sensors, then there's, you know, the gut microbiome is obviously very important, the environment that can be quantified through sensors. Uh, so many different layers, you know, we can get at today, and that's what's really, you know, the turning point. And, and you mentioned all of us and, and yeah. that program, of course, that million-person program, which has about 200,000 participants in it now. Um, it's the largest American medical research program in history, and wow. it will go on likely for many decades like the framing and heart study did, but now, mm. of course, for people who are more than half are underrepresented minorities. And the idea is that eventually these people, if they are willing, will have these multi layers of data about themselves, and that data will be returned to them, and we'll see how it influences their their health and, and their health care. So that's what's exciting is about assembling this cohort where we're we're really testing the, the deep phenotyping value because you know that really hasn't been done at scale in a in a large prospective uh, study. Mm. And how who are the people that you want to make sure are joining that study? What are what are the criteria for eligibility? Uh, well, the criteria is ability to uh, join a study, you know, like <laughs> being able to sign consent. Um, you know, I think we are looking for anyone who's interested. Um, it's you know, it is wide open. We try to encourage, especially people who are um, the underrepresented mm. uh, people in rural communities. You know, people who are not the typical ones. And we're really the first large program uh, ever in medical research where we have more than half. Uh, who are underrepresented minorities. So that's been a special emphasis. But that doesn't mean, you know, if you're not a minority, you're not welcome to join because a million, it may turn out to be millions of people as it's fully assembled. Um, but it's it's exciting because, you know, we're just oh, a year plus into it and we're it's, it's gaining momentum uh, finally. And, uh, 
you know, I think it's going to be like a working laboratory, not just for researchers, but for the people who are in it to learn about themselves. Sure. Have you, have, have we begun to see any unusual insights developing or at least directionally, or is it just too soon uh, to be able to tell? Yeah, it's too soon. I mean, too much of the focus at this juncture has just been to get the people to participate and get their their lab work and their uh, uh, you know initial baseline stuff. So it's early, but you know, before long, uh, if we talk a year from now, we'll have, I'm sure, some important insights. That is fascinating, and I'm going to put a link to the uh, All of Us program in the show notes here, so that folks who are interested can check it out and. Uh, potentially enroll in the program. It's something that I'm actually personally interested in, uh, just because I like to experiment in, you know, sort of my own environment. Yeah, that's great. The citizen scientists, we all <laughs> need to unite. Yeah, exactly. We want to cultivate that. That's the spirit. Yeah. I know that that's something that has been important to you as well as you've developed some of the research programming at Scripps. Today's show is brought to you by Blue Spire, a full-service digital marketing agency focused on complex and highly regulated industries of healthcare, senior living, and financial services. Rapid changes in the healthcare industry are causing consumers to seek out trusted advice, demand more transparency and access to information and content. With over 30 years of healthcare experience, Blue Spire knows how to help you reach, communicate with, and gain trust from these consumers. We help you engage with the right content at every touchpoint, from the first symptom search to appointment scheduling through care management. Visit us at bluespiremarketing.com to learn how we can help you deliver relevant, engaging content through ever-changing touchpoints that matter. Talk a little bit about the Institute and maybe how, uh, how you choose what research to do, what programs to get involved with, what partners to work with. I was really intrigued by the fact that, uh, again, I had seen that you mentioned somewhere that you like to do lots of testing on yourself, and every once in a while those kind of things will show up on your Twitter feed. But uh, how does that play into the sort of the research programming for the Institute? Well, I mean, I think we all, of course, are citizen scientists, so we like to try things out before we test them at any scale, uh, even in a pilot-type study. So, you know, if you can't do it yourself, then you shouldn't be asking other people to participate, right? Fair enough. my philosophy. But what we are, Script Research Translational Institute, is is one of the three institutes now that comprise Script Research, which is... Um, a remarkable biomedical institution that's been around since 1923, and it's one of the top in the world. In fact, it's ranked in nature, um, top in the U.S., and I think second or third in the world consistently wow. for its innovation and impact. And it, you know, characteristically, any given week, will publish papers uh, and make contributions in the leading journals, you know, the nature, science, cell type, which a lot of medical people don't necessarily pay attention to. But its strength has been in basic research. We added another dimension to that. Um, and, of course, there's another institute called Caliber, which is a drug discovery institute. Mm -hmm. And so all, together, these three the basic research, the drug discovery, and our efforts, which is really uh, in, on the human medical side of things. Uh, together, they really constitute a, a, a through-and-through uh, um, uh, life science effort that is trying to take things uh, 
at molecular level, at the patient level, and just trying to do everything we can to to make uh, medicine in the future far better. You know, the way that you describe that, it's it's um, it's been really intriguing. It's something that I've wondered for me about your personal relationship with the Institute. Obviously, you've been with the um, the translational research team at Scripps since its inception, right? In 2007. Right. Yeah. yeah, exactly. How, at this point, you know, having led a, a major department at a major academic medical center to really being around to create this vision for translational research to being an author and now really kind of a public figure in terms of the, the way that we think about the future of medicine. How do you see your role, broadly speaking, where you're, you, it seems like you touch so many things. How, how do you sort of rationalize where you spend your time, uh, you know, where, how you define your mission? I'm just really curious about your perspective of that now, you know, a dozen years into the work at Scripps. Yeah, right. Well, thanks, Greg. I mean, I think, you know, I came out here at the end of 2006, having spent uh, almost 14 years with the uh, Cleveland Clinic mm-hmm. uh, cardiology heart center uh, efforts. And I was very proud of that, but I didn't want to do anything that was strictly cardiovascular. I wanted to broaden things. And so mm-hmm. it was funny when I got arrived in December 06 and I was in a lab, a wet lab, and I looked around, I'm, I'm it. You know, there's no other people here yet. And, uh, you know, the idea was to recruit a bunch of people. Now we have in our own institute over 110 people. And wow. We have, you know, literally hundreds of millions of grants, mainly from NIH, um, that over the next five years. So, you know, we're well-funded and got terrific team of people. And the way we work is trying to be opportunistic, trying to come up with exciting, innovative things. And that's why, you know, every day I come in, I'm so charged up about what we can do because we have a lot of free thinking and, you know, I just today's Monday and I just came from my you know, weekly meeting with the crew and we just brainstorm every week about what can we do differently and exciting things that will um, be, be useful, uh, be of practical value. Um, so as far as, you know, that's kind of what, how we think, uh, just try to, we're not the largest place and we're not the most uh, well endowed perhaps uh, for sure, but we, we are just trying to do things that are in our a wheelhouse that that we you know we know we can execute, um, and so you know we were really the first place to get into the digital medicine sphere, mm-hmm. and that happened by complete uh, in many ways uh, uh, almost an accident. Uh, you know, I come basically the idea was let's get a genomics institute going because there wasn't one here in at Scripps or really in San Diego, and mm-hmm. it was so ideal. There are companies like Illumina were here, and yep. there's a lot of um, you know expertise in the basic science, but there wasn't a human genomics institute. So initially that that was the plan, but within a matter of months, uh, I happened to be at a, a conference that was orchestrated by Qualcomm. And uh, this is the beginning of 2007, and you know the iPhone wasn't introduced until late that year. Right. Uh, but in this meeting in, in March of 07, I'm sitting there in the back row, and they're talking about the smartphone, and it should have a camera on it. In it. And people are objecting to this, saying, this is crazy. We, we, we have all these point-and-click cameras that fit in your pocket. Why do you need to put... It's a phone. Why do you need a camera? And I'm sitting there saying... 
oh my God, this is unbelievable. This smartphone with internet and a camera now, that's a sensor. You can take uh -huh. a picture of something like a skin rash. I said, whoa. So it hit me right that day. It was kind of eureka. We we could really make a play. We have this you know, great, uh, not just Qualcomm, but at the time there were 150 digital medical companies in San Diego with innovations. Most of them, of course, with engineers, but no, no medical grounding. So, sure. you know, we, we basically, we pivoted our, our efforts to be broadened, not just genomics, but digital. And that was important because then we started to get out of this genome-centric thinking, mm -hmm. that this multi-layered, multimodal effort. And so that basically, within the first few months, we defined our trajectory, our arc over the, now it's 13 years into this. And that to me is such a fascinating development because it really does change the game in terms of thinking not just about, you know, how to do more with electronic medical record data or how to do more with uh, personal genomics data, but the combination of those things plus all kinds of sensors and diagnostics. Uh, it's really a fascinating thing, but that is a pretty big pivot. Was it difficult to make the transition? No, no. I mean, that was the happenstance, the good fortune of being in a place where the two largest companies in San Diego are, are Genomics, uh, Lumino, and, and Qualcomm, which was uh, certainly the wireless capital of the world and all of its mm -hmm. derivatives. So we had the brain trust, you know, not to mention, uh, of course, added to that is the fact that within the Mesa, we've got not just Scripps, we've got UC San Diego and Salk and Sanford Burnham and La Jolla Immunology, all these great, um, you know, uh, re really stunning uh, talents, uh, academic as well as the life science and information industry. So this confluence of, of, of all these uh, abilities is what enabled us. And remember too, uh, Greg, that it was in 2000 or 2003 that, you know, it was declared with the draft human genome sequenced. Mm -hmm. You know, you'll remember the famous time on the lawn of the White House and, you know, we've cracked the, the human genome and yep. it was proclaimed that, you know, everything was going to change and it didn't happen. And part of that was, and, and in fact, you know, there were many genome institutes around the country, in the world, but that's what was different that we were up to, which was the realization that, you know, here it's about six years or so into that story, and it wasn't happening. And in some respects, it still hasn't happened broadly as expected. But we have to think of human beings as so much more complex that you're not going to get the story, the mystery or demystification through just a genome sequence. Mm. And so that's why our efforts have been, you know, trying to uh, deconstruct every every possible layer. You know, I, one of the things that I, I have about a million things that I want to ask you about, Eric, but we're running short on time. There's one thing that I would like to ask you about, though, because it's been really intriguing to me personally, and I think maybe a little bit underrepresented in sort of the media or the public consciousness. And that is some of the work that you have done and are doing around uh, not just personalized medicine, but personalized nutrition. 
And mm. I'm wondering if you can share anything about sort of where your thinking is there, whether it's impacting the work that you're doing at scripts or in in other places, and uh, maybe some of the things that we should be looking for uh, as we're looking to the future of nutrition as a you know a way of impacting our health. Yeah, such a vital topic, Greg, and it is an area of fascination for me and our whole group. And that is, you know, I get into it a lot in the chapter Deep Diet in the book, mm-hmm. Deep Medicine. And in fact, we'd like to use food as medicine, but we haven't had a, really a good clue, any good data for how to accomplish that. And we're going to get there. We're going to get there, at least for those people who are interested, they're going to be able to know what are really good foods, what kind of diet is for them. But, you know, we're only starting to chip away. It really was AI that got us uh, to the starting gates because now we know what uh, that glucose response to foods, specific foods and specific individuals, added now triglycerides and insulin levels, all these things now um, we're starting to understand whether it's not just gut microbiome, but physical activity and sleep and stress level and, you know, medications and all these different factors, again, layers of a person's Mm -hmm. uh, data, we can, you know, impute that to say, you know what, these foods are going to be helpful for you for metabolic, your metabolic story. And and these Mm -hmm. are going to be dinging you, you know, they're not good for you. And over time that will then link to help, uh, helping to prevent, you know, critical conditions uh, that one is predisposed to, like heart disease or cancer or neurodegenerative conditions. So we're we're only kind of at first base, but that's a big jump where, from where we have been. Um, and I think what's what really is noteworthy here is that, um, you know, I in my clinic every week I do a lot of unprescribing. You know, medicines are there's so many that are used that are unnecessary. And they have terrible side effects, and we don't consider that. And it's it's remarkable how many times you just get rid of some medicines and people feel better. Uh, so what about if we could get rid of more medicines and use people's food intake to substitute for that? Yes. But we just haven't had the, the path, you know, laid. We, it, had been, it hasn't been developed. But you know, over time, I think there is now finally the beginning of that, um, you know, it, it, it's, we're not there yet by any means. There is no commercial entity today that is doing this right, and, and we don't even have the validation uh, to substantiate it. But over time, you know, the next few years, we're going to keep making progress. It's going to be interesting to see how the various components of that kind of program come together, both in terms of, you know, being able to collect the data easily. I've got to believe that's one of the really tricky things. You know, not everybody wants to weigh the piece of chicken they're about to eat, you know, every time they do it. I think capturing that data, being able to process that data, and even, I mean, what you just described there, it sounded pretty simple, but it's actually pretty weighty just in terms of thinking about the different role that a clinician might play uh, in helping their patients to be healthier. Um, Because I can't believe that that happens too often today. Well, yeah, and I think it's a respect for, you know, the term big data, of course, is hackneyed, but it takes a lot of data to understand Mm -hmm. the person's nutritional interactions, you know, and 
what we have today is, you know, we have these tribalism among diets, you know, people who are really big on the keto diet and the paleo diet and this diet or that, and they just are, you know, fervent and strident about it. Well, you know, it could turn out that they, they, they feel better and it's helping them and that's great. But for some people, it's not a good diet or it could even be in the long term, not good for their health. So we, we have to get smarter about this. And it was really uh, assimilation, processing, uh, you know, the uh, crystallization of, of multi-layer data that's helping us get there. Well, I think it's really fascinating things to be able to look to in the future. And um, I'm so grateful to you for sharing some of your thinking with us today. Um, I've been really, I've loved reading Deep Medicine and uh, certainly will continue to follow the work that you and your team at Scripps are doing uh, over the next months and years. Thanks for being oh, with us. Oh, really appreciate it, Greg. Really enjoy to be with you and keep up the great work that you've been doing. Thanks so much. Thanks so much for listening to the Data Point podcast. If you like what you've heard, please do rate, review, and share it with your social network. It means a lot. And if you have ideas for show topics or guests, please email them to me at greg at healthquant.health or send a direct message to at Chai Moose on Twitter. That's C-H-I-M-O-O-S-E on Twitter. For more information about this show or any of the terrific healthcare podcasts in the Touchpoint Media Network, check them out at touchpoint.health. See you next time. This has been a Touchpoint Media production. To learn more about this show and others like it, please visit us online at touchpoint.health.